Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's get to it. Romans chapter 4 is where we find ourselves this morning. Apologize for the mic misfunction. If you have a Bible, we'd love for you to open it to Romans 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the ones that you can find in the chair in front of you. And as you're finding Romans chapter 4, if you're visiting with us for the first time today, we've been working our way through this beautiful letter that Paul writes to the church at Rome. And we find ourselves this morning in Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, which is in many ways not really... Anything new that we've been going over these past few weeks and even months, it's, it's really a repetition. In fact, Paul is drilling down in to this beautiful truth that I think the whole book of Romans is actually about. So today, in, in many ways, is, is a kind of uh, hammering home this truth that we've been dwelling on. Now, if you are at all familiar with the U.S. Army Airborne School, you would know that it is about a day or two of training jammed into three weeks. Just let that, take that in. It's really not that complicated what you're doing when you jump out of an army aircraft. You are given a parachute that you're strapped up to, and you stand up, hook up, shuffle to the door, say it with me, soldiers, jump right out and count to four. And this static line pulls the chute open for you. Now, if that doesn't go well, then you do have a reserve chute. But really, all you have to do is to learn how to land, to keep your feet and knees together so that you don't hurt yourself when you land, which is actually relatively common, but anyway, we won't get into that. You have to stand up, hook up, shuffle to the door, jump right out, and count to four. It's really actually quite simple, and you could probably learn how to do that in a day or two, but it takes three weeks Because jumping out of an airplane is very dangerous. And you need to get simple truths right when you're doing that. Likewise, the doctrine, the truth, the reality that Paul is hammering home to us this morning is simple. But getting it wrong is really, really really dangerous, and he wants to make sure that we get it. So let me read uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, and by the way, he's going to stay on this in the rest of Romans chapter 4, so we're going to be here again in a couple weeks, and then he's going to do some more in Romans chapter 5 and 6, and in fact, the whole book is really just Paul expanding this one great truth. Let me read Romans 9, verse, Romans 4, verses 9 through 12. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? And we'll explain, if you're not familiar with biblical terms, what all of these things mean here in a moment. 
Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Okay, lots of words in there that need explaining. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Father, thank you for this text and for your, just your grace to us that we can gather I pray that as we open your word that you would show us beautiful things. We, we are people of the book. And life has been breathed into us by your Holy Spirit who inspired men through the centuries to write this book. Lord, we, we want to hold fast to your word. We want to stare at it. We want you to do beautiful things in our minds and our hearts and our lives through it. We're not here to entertain ourselves or become more relevant. We, we want to see your eternal truth, and we want to respond rightly in light of it. And I know that there are people in this room who do not yet know you, and they need a miracle. They don't need to improve themselves. They don't need to clean themselves up because that's impossible. They can't do that. They're unable to do that. That's what sin has done to all of us. They need a miracle of your grace. They need the gift of faith, as Will prayed earlier today. And Lord, those of us that have been made alive miraculously by your saving power, we need to be stirred afresh to see this truth of the gospel again. And we need to do the hard work of rolling up our sleeves to apply it to every area of our lives so that we might be conformed more into the image of Christ. Lord, these are weighty and serious things. This is not just some distant doctrinal truth that hangs in the air. This is, this is the difference between life and death. This is so important. Help us to see it. Help me to communicate it effectively. And Lord, would you be glorified this morning, I pray, as your people are encouraged. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think the main point of what Paul is getting at here is this, and we'll put it up on the screen, and then we're going to explain some, some terms and then work our way back through this text. I think the main point that Paul is speaking about in Romans 4, 9 through 12, and that he spoke about at the beginning of chapter 4, and that he really developed in chapter 3, is that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And what is that word justified? That word justified means to be made right, to be declared by a holy God that a particular group of people are made right. They who previously were, as Paul said in that introduction to that song that we sang, 
people who were previously ungodly, unable to approach a holy God, have been made right, declared by God to be justified, to be right, in right relationship with him. Why? How? By grace. In other words, by nothing that they have done, but by grace, by his gift of faith that he gives a person in his sovereign kindness and then makes them alive so that that faith can be received and exercised not just generally in an ambiguous sort of way to this sort of cultural notion of God, but specifically in what God has done through his son Jesus, God the Son, in the flesh, fully man, fully God, who lived a perfect, obedient life where we have all rebelled and then laid down his perfect life on the cross to bear the wrath and punishment that should have been ours because we were not just, we were sinful by nature, that he would bear God's punishment, satisfy it, extinguish it, rise again in victory over death, sin, in the grave. And now because he is alive, because he's the king, because he's the victor, he now is able to give life, to justify all those that have faith in him. And so the main point of Romans The main point of Romans 3, I think the main point of the Bible is this very good news of the gospel that we are made right with God. We are justified not because we are good in and of ourselves, because none of us are, but because God has justified us. He has made us right. He has declared unrighteous, ungodly people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. He has made them just by grace. It's a gift. Through faith, we must exercise it in Christ alone. That's the point of the Bible. That's the most important news in the universe. That's what Romans 4 is about. And Paul, by the way, I hope that sounded familiar if you've been around Crosspoint for a while. Because we basically get to that at some point every Sunday. We start with that. We work out from that. We come back to it. We, we weave in and out of that truth. And that is the, the supreme truth, I think, in the universe. And Paul here in Romans 4, verses 9 through 12, is zeroing in on the life of Abraham, who was this father of the... Hebrew people in the Old Testament. He was the beginning of the nation of Israel in Genesis chapter 12. And remember what Paul is doing in the book of Romans is he is trying to bring in many ways reconciliation between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in Rome who are in the same church who are struggling to do life together because they're from two different people. So these Jewish Christians are, are wondering how much of their Jewishness has actually contributed to their right standing with God. Because they are seeing themselves through the prism of the Old Testament law and through this, this, this act of circumcision, which is the cutting away of the male foreskin, that is a kind of symbol of God marking off his people. It was a symbol of God saying, this particular group of people in the Old Testament is mine. And so, the Jews that had trusted in Christ and become Christians 
are looking at their right standing with God, still filtering it through this prism of who they are ethnically and who they are in relationship to something that they have done, like circumcision or their obedience to the law. And these Gentile Christians who did not grow up as Jews, who did not grow up with the law, who were uncircumcised, uh, are wrestling with whether or not they need to become like their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ in, in order to be fully accepted by God. And Paul is saying that no, the gospel is the good news that all of these Old Testament laws and markers and things like circumcision were shadows that are pointing to the reality that they point to, which is ultimately Jesus. And now the one who has not works or obedience in and of themselves, but faith in Jesus Christ is the one that God has declared righteous because he's even given them that faith. And what Paul is doing here in Romans 4 is he's pointing back to the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham, and he's saying, even Abraham, who was the first one to be a Jew, who God told him to circumcise himself and then all of his male descendants after him, even Abraham was not made right with God because of something he did, i.e. circumcision, but he was actually made right with God long before that. In fact, that's Paul's point in verse 10. He says, when did Abraham's circumcision happen? It happened after God justified him and gave him faith. In fact, it happened about 20 years after. And so Paul, to make a point to the Jewish Christians who still think maybe that they're made right with God by their obedience, by their works, by their Jewishness, and for us we might translate that to our, to our you know, Christian heritage or our upbringing in the Bible belt, God is saying no, Right standing with God is not because of anything you did. It's not because of anything Abraham did. Even his circumcision, which you are hanging your hat on as your sort of nationalistic pride, but it's because of the gift of faith that God gave to him 20 years before he even obeyed God. Do you see the point there? And so, why, and here's the question that we, we want to consider and then work out from this. Why is Paul hammering this truth? Why is Paul taking something that I think we can kind of get there in just a few minutes, and why is he writing a whole letter? Why is the Holy Spirit inspiring men to write a whole book of the Bible that hammers home this truth? I think there are three reasons why Paul keeps hammering this truth in this text this morning. The first is this, to work humility in us. To work humility in us. Look again at verse 9. It says, Paul writes, is this blessing, and by blessing I think he means right standing with God or justification, this gift of being made right, declared right with God by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? And that is just a kind of a, 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 a phrase that he would, he would just use the word circumcision to classify a whole people group. In other words, the ethnic Jew. Is this blessing then only for the Jews? or also for the uncircumcised. In other words, all of the other people that are not Jews, the Gentiles. So we could read verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the Jews, or also for the Gentiles? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How was it counted to him, verse 10? Was it 
before or after he had been circumcised. In other words, did he, was he justified by God because he obeyed God or was he justified because of God's grace? And he answers this, that, that for us there in verse 10. He says, it was not after, it was not God responding to something Abraham did. It was solely by grace before he was circumcised. And so Paul is wanting to reiterate the point to the Jew to humble them that if you are right with God, it is not because of anything in you. Now, why is this so important for us? I, I, think, I think the vast majority of us believe this, and you probably say, Brad, you say that, we say that every Sunday. Well, yes, because I think the Bible says that every Sunday. But why is this so important? I think, it's be, I think one reason, applying it to us, that it's so important is because we live in maybe the most self-absorbed age in the history of civilization. I, I, I think that our narcissism, particularly in our American context and culture, is so accepted and expected that it's hard for us to notice all the ways that we are affected by it. And here's the challenge for many of us, is that when we think about this great truth in the Bible of the gospel, that we are made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we, we can get into a mode where we actually agree with that theoretically, and we say, no, I know that there's nothing I can do to earn my right standing with God. And we, in fact, we even acknowledge it. We know it. We listen to it. We teach that truth. We confess it. But it seems in many instances in our lives to have no real impact on us. So there's a kind of dangerous place to be that we can see this great truth that should humble us, that nobody comes to God because of their own righteousness, that God must do something to us so that we can approach him. And we see that truth and we are encouraged by it and we worship God when we gather together. But then we so easily just return to the essentially self-absorbed lifestyle that we have and we're just easy, we're just so quick to anger with one another and we're just so judgmental towards people who are also in trapped in sins that we were just 10 years before. And so I think the application for us before we, work, before we move on to the second point is that I just want to ask myself, is my heart freshly warmed and stirred when I hear the good news of the gospel? When, when I hear that there's nothing in me that would commend me to God naturally, that I am not saved because I grew up in this family or that part of town or this particular region or in this church. Uh, I am saved. I am justified. I am made right with God by grace alone. It's a gift through faith alone in Christ alone. Does that humble me? Does that stir affection and worship in my heart? And does that produce in me more long-suffering for people who were previously like me that do not know that, who don't believe that, who are still dead in their sins? Do I have more patience with them? Am I more long-suffering with them? Or am I quick to anger? And do I assume the best of my own intentions and the worst of other people's? Has the gospel, has the good news of the gospel 
worked its way from being a mere doctrinal confession to actually working itself into the nooks and crannies and crevices of my very life and the way I even view the world. And I think we need to ask ourselves, all of us need to ask ourselves that question every week, every day. What do we do if we, what do we, do if we realize that it's, it's, it's sort of distant? It's kind of like theoretical, but it's not really humbling me. I'm easy to anger. I'm judgmental. I'm legalistic. I, I, I'm just frustrated with everybody around me. And I'm preaching to myself here. What do we do? Oh, we, we, we pray, we repent, we don't leave this room this morning without asking God to give us a fresh awareness of the grace of the gospel that God would be just and good if he were to have left any of us that know him in our sins so that we would not know him. The gospel, when we see it, should work humility. And Paul is wanting to work humility in the lives of the ethnic Jews in the church in Rome because there was ethnic tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. What's on the line here is not just the individual spiritual experience of people that don't see this truth clearly and run it through every facet of their lives. What was on the line here was the witness of the church to an onlooking world. And Paul wants Christians to be the most humble, the most gracious, the most long-suffering people so that they are a countercultural display to an onlooking world should work humility in us. The second thing that I think that well, the reason Paul keeps hammering this truth is that he wants us to see, he wants his readers, he wants the church in Rome, and I think through him the Holy Spirit wants us to see the relationship between faith, which God gives us as a gift, and our obedience. So let me read verses 10 and 11 again of our text. Paul says, How then was it counted to him, this righteousness that God gives to people through faith in Christ. How was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So again, just reiterating that point that Paul is saying that the gift of faith and right standing with God was not in response to something that Abraham did, but in fact he was circumcised some 20 years after, in Genesis 17, God came to him and credited righteousness to him in Genesis 15. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Then verse 11, he says, He then received the sign of circumcision, again, 20 years after he believed, and God credited to him his righteousness, before 20 years after, God gave him the gift of faith so that he could trust in God. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Okay, so here's what's going on here. Is that Paul is wanting us, he's wanting to make sure, I think, that his listeners, his readers, and us today realize the relationship between faith and obedience. And we're prone to fall off on one side of the ditch. On one side, 
we are prone to think that we are made right with God by his works. And that's why we need to be reminded of the gospel, right? You, you give yourself about a year or five years or ten years of kind of living for God, serving the church, and, and you can get into this kind of subconscious mode that you're like, God's sort of pleased with me because I'm, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm doing something. I'm teaching a class. I'm leading a community group. I'm, I'm serving in children's ministry. Clearly God is pleased with me, and there's a special little crown. And we can get into this mode that we think that we're made right with God and that we're sort of above other people simply because we are serving him. That's legalism. On the other side, we can fall off on the ditch on the other side to think that we're saved by grace through faith and we may be prone to abuse grace. And so we use the free, sovereign grace of God and it's not us that does anything to contribute to our salvation to actually justify staying in sin. So we say, well, I mean, it's all by grace. I'm just kind of a meager sinner. Well, you know, God's going, it just woes me. I'm saved by grace, so I might as well just kind of, you know, do whatever. You see, one side is a kind of legalism. The other side is a kind of licentiousness, a kind of sinful liberty. And Paul is wanting to help us to see the relationship. From the beginning of this letter, Paul has been concerned about encouraging the church to actually produce the fruit of obedience that comes from their faith. And Paul uses the circumcision of Abraham and of Jews as an example of obedience and how it relates to faith. So what is Paul's point? Before we, we zero in on that, I think we need to understand what the purpose of circumcision, circumcision is. Paul says in verse 11 that it's a sign and a seal of the righteousness that God gave to Abraham long before he was circumcised. In Genesis 15, we won't take the time to read it, Abraham has, has, is God's man. God came to him in Genesis 12, spoke to him, said, you're going to be my man. I'm going to form a nation through you, and I'm going to... I'm going to build a nation that is going to bless the world. Abraham sort of believed him, and he comes again to him in Genesis 15, and he says, Abraham, the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to give you and your wife a child. But at this point, Abraham was like 99, and Sarah was like 90 or something. And in fact, when God told Abraham and Sarah that they were actually going to have a child, a physical, biological child, they, in fact, Sarah starts laughing. Can you imagine? Ha! <laughs> Basically is what they said to God. And Abraham, though, believed God that he would have a child through his wife. And he was in his 90s. I am 46, and I feel my body falling apart I, I snap, crackle, pop when I get up in the morning, my joints. And a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, um, I was at a conference with a young man in this church. Uh, he shall remain nameless, but his first name is J.D. and his last name is Marquez. <laughs> and we were sitting next to one another at this conference and at the end of the day, he says, hey, Brad, man, you were right. When you get up and sit down, like, you do snap, crackle, and pop. 
<laughs> See, that's right, young buck. And your day is coming too. Brother. And Abraham and Sarah are promised by God that they will have a child in their late years. Sarah laughs. Abraham believes God. And in Genesis 15, verse 6, it says that God credited the gift of faith that he gave to Abraham. God credited. He justified. He made Abraham righteous through the faith that he gave him. So, so just get the picture here because this is really important to understand salvation. Abraham, before God showed up to him, was just a pagan, false god worshiper wandering around in the desert with his forefathers. God shows up to Abraham, speaks to him, says, you're going to be my man. I'm going to give you a nation, and this nation is going to bless the world. And then he shows up again to him in Genesis 15, and he starts to get more specific, and he says, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you and your old wife a child. And Abraham, who was dead in his unbelief, God moved on his heart, gave Abraham's dead heart grace and life so that, and gave him the gift of faith so that Abraham could believe what God had said to him. So God gave Abraham the thing that he required of him, and Abraham exercised the gift of faith that God gave him and believed what God told him, and God then credited, he justified, he made Abraham righteous through the very gift that he gave Abraham and enabled him to believe in himself. Do you see that? And that happened 20 years before then, in another couple chapters in Genesis 17, when God says, okay, he shows back up to Abraham, and he says, this is how I am going to sort of display to an onlooking world that you're my man and that everybody that comes from you is my people. I'm going to, and, and look, I mean, God in his kindness and in his wisdom chose circumcision as the sign and the seal of that. And let me just say, I think that what's going on there is, I think we all know, most of us, what circumcision is. It's a rather intimate surgical procedure in a very sensitive part of the male body. And I think what God is saying to Abraham there in circumcision is he's saying, I'm going to give you actually a son through your union with your wife. And just so you know that this is nothing that you have done, I'm going to actually wound the very mechanism of your body through which that's going to happen just to sort of get you in touch with your utter frailty and dependence on me so that there's nothing in you that would beat your chest and say, me, Tarzan, you, Jane, we did this. Do you see that? It is God removing any opportunity for boasting in Abraham by marking him off and saying, I'm going to cut that away just so you know, it's all me. Just as a reminder. And Abraham circumcises himself, and this sign of circumcision in the Old Testament becomes a a sign. What is a sign? It, It tells 
somebody something. It, it displays a message. And what is the message that is displayed in this circumcision of Abraham and then all of God's people in the Old Testament? Well, I think it's threefold. First, it's for the person. It's for Abraham. It's a reminder to Abraham that God is the source of all of his blessing. God is the reason that he's justified. God was the one who gave him grace. God was the one who gave him faith. It's, a, it's an assurance of God's faithfulness to Abraham. So it's a sign to Abraham to help him remember that this is God that's worked in you. It's a, it's a sign to all of Abraham's family, to the people of God in the Old Testament, so that they know who is theirs. So it marks God's people off so that the Lord's people, in this case in the Old Testament, the ethnic Jews, know who they are responsible for. And then thirdly, circumcision functions as a sign to an onlooking world. It marks off God's people so that an onlooking world gets a clearer picture, Lord willing, of what it means to be part of God's people. And that's the very reason, remember, in Genesis 12, why God even raised up this nation of people in the Old Testament so that through them, they would be a picture, a display to bring blessing for all of the peoples because God's heart has always been to save a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he marks off his people by this sign to give them assurance, to let them know who they are, and to say to an onlooking world, these are my people. This sign is not pointing to them, it's pointing to God who worked salvation in them. Do you see that? And that's what that's what circumcision is. It's, it's, a kind of, it's a kind of emblematic sign of obedience. It's what people who have been made alive by God do symbolically. I'm not talking about literally circumcision, but circumcision becomes a kind of display of Abraham's first act of obedience that is even possible because God made him alive. So this is how John Piper puts it in his sermon on Romans 4. And I was just really, really helped by Piper's sermon. I'm, I'm always helped by Piper's sermons. And I listened to this uh, at the end of the week. And I thought about just hitting record or just hitting play and letting you listen to Piper. But, you know, you pay me to preach. So anyway, here we go. This is what Piper says, and it's really helpful. When your life... And he's speaking about this relationship between Abraham's circumcision and his faith and our obedience and faith. And what role our obedience or sort of our, think of it, you know, Abraham's circumcision, think of that in the context of his obedience to God. What role that should play in the life of a believer for us. When your life begins to conform to the will of God, this is a sign. It is a sign and seal that your faith is real and that you have an unshakable righteousness, namely the righteousness of God in Christ. An act like circumcision or any other act in obedience to God. So hear me, friends. I'm not arguing that everybody should. I think, we're not saying we're talking about circumcision spiritually, that it's a kind of picture of obedience to God. An act like circumcision or any other act in obedience to God does not give you your right standing with God. Faith alone does that. 
but the acts of obedience are a sign and a seal that your faith is real and that Christ is your perfect righteousness. So do you see what Piper's saying there? He's saying that our obedience is not the basis of our right standing with God. That is God's grace through faith alone and Christ alone. Our obedience is not the basis for our right standing with God. It's the result of it. So a heart that has been made right will, to some degree, necessarily pursue obedience. This is the argument of James. In James chapter 2, he says that faith without works is dead. And so Paul is making the point that you can't just say that you're a Jew just because you're a Jew or you're a Christian just because you're a Christian. And if there's nothing in your life that objectively points back to the reality of the gift of faith in your life, then you should be concerned. And Paul is saying that Abraham is an example of this, that he obeyed God not so that God would count him righteous, but because God in his sovereign grace did this for him. And friends, I I think that is absolutely essential. Let me just try and apply this to our lives. Some of us in this room are undoubtedly in a battle with severe, severe sin and struggling with all manner of things. And how how do you fight that sin? How do you fight that spiritual battle? Not by looking to yourself and wondering whether or not you have the resolve and the grit, but by looking back, looking back to God's grace in your life and knowing that if God has worked righteousness and grace and salvation in your life, not because of your obedience, but because of his grace, then that frees you up to realize that God has made you alive. And although you are struggling, you are fighting an inevitably winning battle because God has made you alive and he will not lose his people. He guarantees in Philippians 1.6 that he who has begun a good work in us will carry it through to completion until that day. And so this is important, friends, when we see that I can obey God. I'm not given to merely my own strength, but God has worked something in me, and it produces in me this resolve to look back at God's grace in my life and realize that obedience must and, in fact, will follow for the Christian that should put steel in our spines and grit in our hands to fight the fight of faith. That's essential. And I think for some of us, maybe, it should actually have another kind of effect. It should probably produce in us a kind of doubt that I think is holy and righteous. There are many people that I think have been given a false assurance by weak church cultures that don't truly preach the gospel. They preach a a kind of justification by works or church attendance or family heritage. And maybe there's people in this room that think that they are right with God, but there's no, there's not even a hint of fruit and obedience that has come from their life. And friends, you should not assume that you are right with God merely because you grew up in the South or in such and such a church or whatever. 
But we are right with God by His grace. And when we see that, it will necessarily produce in us obedience that should produce confidence in the struggling Christian. And it should produce despair in the person who thinks they're a Christian, but they truly aren't, that would cause them then to run to the cross and not to themselves. And then finally, thirdly, I think Paul tells us this, to stir in us a zeal for all peoples to come to this truth. Look again at the halfway through there in verse 11 and into 12. He says that he, got, he received this sign. And the purpose of this sign was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, meaning even the Gentiles, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, in other words, the Jews, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So to summarize what Paul is saying in the second half of verse 11 into verse 12, is he's saying that this was all given to Abraham. This was given to him. This justification by faith alone was given to him. The way he was saved was not through his obedience, but by God's grace, so that Abraham could be the prototype, the spiritual father of all that would trust in Christ. The Jew, not because of his Jewness, but because of his faith, and the Gentile because of his faith. So the circumcised and the uncircumcised, Abraham is the father of all who would believe. He's the father in the sense that he's the example. He's the first example of all who would believe in Christ. And this should produce in us, I believe, a zeal. And this is the third point, the third reason I think Paul's hammering this home. This should produce in us a zeal for all kinds of people to come to this truth. Jews and Gentiles, Americans, Uzbekis, people in Kosovo, people in South America, white people, black people, Latin people, Asian people, Rich people, poor people, well-to-do people, people, educated people, uneducated people. It has always been God's plan to include all peoples. And this should produce in the church today a zeal for all kinds of people to come to this truth. It should humble us and it should produce in us a zeal just to apply this and then we'll, we'll be done. Think in terms, we think in terms here at Crosspoint in terms of neighbors and nations. We want to think about taking the gospel to the people around us and to the nations. And in order to do that, we, we need to know the gospel ourselves well enough. How does God bring the gospel to people? How does he bring this great message? He brings it through people like us who know the gospel well enough to articulate it to others. He shares it with people. The way I came to faith in Jesus was that my older brother went away to college, heard the gospel, and shared it with me over the course of about four years, and then finally it took root in my life. And that's the way God does it. 
Who in our sphere of influence can we begin to pray for and share with? Do we have a zeal? Do we have a desire for people? The open door of the gospel. For whosoever will believe, if we don't have a zeal and a desire for that, then we should pray before we leave this building this morning that God would stir that within us. And not only should we go to people in our sphere of influence, but we should engage people. And this is the great truth of the gospel. We should engage people not like us. Because it becomes an extraordinary, compelling display of the gospel when people are gathered together, not because they're from, they're from the same subgroup, but because they have nothing in common but Christ. That becomes a compelling witness for the gospel to an onlooking world. And oh, that God would do that among us here at Crosspoint. We have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. May this humble us. May this give us resolve for the fight, and may it produce in us a passion for the gospel amongst all peoples, our neighbors and the nations. Let's pray. Father, as we think about this text, as we consider this great truth of the gospel, I pray that we would never move on from it, that it would never get old, that we would be freshly amazed Lord, produce in us humility and patience and long-suffering. Produce in us resolve to bring about obedience in our lives to your beautiful will and give us a passion for all peoples. Lord, from this congregation, I pray that you'd send people out to the nations to be missionaries. You'd send people out to be missionaries to their neighborhoods, to their neighbors to people in their workplace. I pray that you would shake us from a a comfortable Bible Belt faith that is content with apprehending the gospel intellectually but not being floored by it and amazed by it and moved by it to give our lives away to serving it in whatever context that we are in. Lord, help us with this. We need your grace to respond rightly to this truth. So come now and stir in our hearts affection for Jesus, for unbelievers in this room. Make them alive. Give them the gift of faith. And as we respond to you in worship, Lord, would you be glorified? Would business be done between us and you this morning as we repent and pray and ask for you to enlarge our hearts and stir us? I pray that you do it all for the glory of your name and the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. As the worship team comes back to lead us in song, let's take this moment to just reflect and ask God to stir our hearts.
Well, let's all stand. Sing this great truth that our hope is in Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are sealed, when striving cease, my comforter. 